Welcome to Crashing the War Party. We're fresh off a holiday break and raring to go. As always, my co-host Daniel Larson and I endeavor to bring something you won't hear anywhere else, insightful analysis that defies the orthodoxy and braves the critics. Today, we will be talking to Professor Chris Coyne about his new book, In Search of Monsters to Destroy the Folly of American Empire and the Path to Peace. But first, a little news housekeeping. The D.C. media machine seemed gorged out on Turkey last week, but the headlines kept coming. Some slipped right under the radar. Things that could prove to be pretty impactful on our immediate foreign policy and national security uh, were left a little bit untouched. So Dan and I are going to talk about them, take a whack at a few of them, and if you don't mind, in fairly quick succession. So first, the Israelis. A report in the Jerusalem Post on Monday says the Israel Air Force this week will hold one of its largest drills in years with the United States Air Force simulating offensive strikes against Iran's nuclear program. The drill will take place this week until uh, through, through the, through Friday, I believe, over the Mediterranean Sea in Israel will include long range flights such as those that Israeli, Israeli pilots might need to make in order to reach the Islamic Republic. The exercise will include refuelers. Um, it raises an, an agreement, uh, that the U.S. signed with Israel saying it would provide missile defense if the country were attacked. So um, this article follows on another over the last weekend, Dan, that said that Israeli officials were in D.C. Um, basically trying to compel American officials uh, to accelerate joint plans for offensive actions against Iran. Um, you know, this, this seems really dangerous. It seems like the Israelis really want to accelerate a path to war here with Iran and, and, and nobody's really talking about it. Well, I mean, one of the things that is happening here, I think, is that the Israeli government has made so many noises over the years about possibly attacking Iran or Iran's facilities that it, it does sort of fade into the background. And, and so when in this talk does ratchet up, uh, and intensify as it has been, uh, it, it does tend to get lost because people will, I think, tend to dismiss it and say, "Oh, that, that's what they've been saying for ten years or fifteen years." But I, I think there is a greater danger of it uh, possibly happening in, in the next few years because, uh, of course, the, the JCPOA is on its uh, last legs. It's, it's probably going to collapse within the next year, um, or if, if it remains technically alive, it will. It won't be in force. And so the, the nuclear issue will very much once again be a, a major issue uh, for both the Israeli government and the, and the U.S. government. And so uh, I think we have to take these reports more seriously as uh, you know, possible preparation for launching what would be, uh, we have to emphasize, an illegal and unprovoked attack on another country uh, because of suspicions about what they might do with their nuclear program. Uh, which is, it's close enough to what was done with the Iraq war that it, it should alarm people. Of course, Iran actually has a nuclear program, unlike Iraq, which it did nothing. Uh, but but the, the crucial point is that Iran still, even now, is not actually trying to build nuclear weapons, even though they are getting closer and closer to having the means to do so. Right. Uh, and so what what we've seen over the last few years is the backfiring of pressure tactics on Iran to drive them closer to the goal that everyone says we don't want them to reach. Uh, and then 
people start rattling sabers about attacking them, which can only give them another incentive to build those weapons. And so it's, uh, it is very worrisome that we're, we're back here again, talking about this stuff like it's 2007 all over again. Um, uh, it's, it, yeah. yeah. And, and not only that, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is retaking uh, his position at head of the Israeli government. So, yeah, it is like we've taken a time machine back, which puts, you know, the situation in an even more precarious position because his Likud party is very hawkish and he has been rattling the sabers since God knows when. He's, as you remember, he came to Congress, you know, to compel uh, the United States to go after Iran because of its uh, nu- supposed nuclear weapons program. And so now he's back in the leadership and it's a more right-wing uh, fascistic government than ever before. So I, I, I have a feeling that this is just, this is not just one other um, military exercise or the, the same sable rattling. I, I think this is, this is bringing things up to a whole new level. Um, okay, so let's move on because I know we don't have a lot of time and Chris Coyne will be joining us shortly. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, Haiti. There was a piece in the New York Times on Tuesday that talked about U.S. officials behind the scenes pushing for a multinational peacekeeping force to move into that country to, to restore some semblance of stability. There is cholera breaking out. There is gang violence there. The government is practically non-existent. Um, violence everywhere. But Dan, you've written about this. This is a multinational force, even if it didn't include U.S. troops, which I guess the, the plan would not to be include U.S. forces. Even, even so, that's not a very good idea, is it? Well, right. We've, we've had, uh, we've had examples of international interventions in Haiti, both U.S.-led and U.N.-led, uh, over uh, the decades. And, and what they all have in common is that all of them have failed to establish long-term stability. They've failed to, to provide the security that they were meant to provide. Uh, and instead, uh, the, the U.N. mission that was there uh, for 13 years uh, not only uh, didn't provide the, the stability and security that it was supposed to provide, uh, but it was actually uh, responsible for many human rights abuses uh, in the in the raids that were carried out against gangland territories, um, sexual assault against Haitian women, and of course the, the spreading of cholera, which was introduced into Haiti, uh, was not there before. But it was introduced by UN peacekeepers, and so Haiti is still dealing with the the consequences of the last time that the world tried to to quote unquote help them. Uh, and that is why, of course, there's extreme skepticism and resistance to the, the idea of any foreign intervention force in Haiti. Uh, the, what I found uh, disturbing about the New York Times piece is that it, it really downplayed Haitian opposition to the intervention that you find um, among a lot of people, um, ordinary Haitians on the street and, and among Haitian civil society leaders. And so even when they quote some of those civil society leaders in this piece, uh, it's it's mostly by way of checking a box to say that yes, we talked to somebody who's mm. opposed to it, but you know we're we're basically discounting them, and we're we're going to focus on all of these anecdotes that back the case for intervention. Uh, and and another telling detail or omission, I think, is really a better 
way to describe it, is when they talk to the former special envoy from the U.S. for Haiti, Daniel Foote, uh, and they, they only talk to him, or they only quote him one time in the article near the beginning, uh, and you would never know from that that he's been one of the most vocal, unspoken opponents of any intervention force in Haiti, and in fact, he resigned in disgust last year over U.S. policy in Haiti, and specifically the U.S. support for uh, the current de facto government there, which is widely regarded as illegitimate uh, by most people in Haiti. Of course, uh, the current prime minister, Ariel Henry, is not uh, an elected prime minister. He he took over after the former president, the, the late president, was assassinated, and he simply stayed in power uh, and refused to budge. And it's that government that is asking for intervention hmm. uh, over, the, over the objections of large parts of Haitian society. I guess you, you can quibble about how how widespread opposition to the inter, to the intervention there is, but there's clearly good reason to be wary of getting involved in a military mission in a country where some large percentage of the population doesn't want you there. Ugh. And indeed, the the Canadians, uh, whom the Biden administration has been trying to uh, cajole into taking the lead on this, have been very reluctant to take the lead because they don't want to be seen as propping up the current government uh, over the wishes of the opposition. Uh, and there's also the, the practical problem that the Canadians don't actually have the means to well, mount this kind of operation on their own anyway. Um, so while it's it's good that Biden doesn't want to send U.S. troops there, I, I find it kind of baffling that he's trying to go to other gun governments right. into sending troops uh, into a situation where we know foreign intervention isn't going to work no matter who ends up going. It seems it's though uh, Biden has learned the lesson, rightly so, that uh, the Americans don't want uh, their men and women uh, fighting in um, foreign interventions on behalf of other countries, uh, that those, you know, those lessons had been learned in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. Okay, he gets it, but he does seem to be, uh, you know, very much indulgent of this idea that the United States has to intervene uh, militarily and through proxies. And you see this happening in Ukraine. I mean, you know, he keeps reminding us, oh, no, we're not going to put U.S. troops in, but we'll do everything up to that point, you know, it, it, you know, to continue a protracted war uh, with Russia. And I, I mean, so it, it seems like a, a real, you know, it, it's a conundrum because if he does or if his officials are pushing this idea of a multinational force, he um, it, it has, has not yet acknowledged, like what you said, that these foreign interventions, if not organic, you know, from within are not going to work and actually might bring greater harm to the very people we are supposed to be helping, liberating, whatnot. And I, and I believe the same in, in Ukraine. And, and I, and I realize that's a different conversation, but I feel like, uh, well, maybe it's just, he's trying to have it both ways. The administration is trying to have it both ways. They're cleaving to this responsibility to protect ethos while at the same time, um, selfishly, you know, not putting our own skin in the game. So anyway, we can move on to our last, which is more of an analysis piece or an op-ed. Uh, but Daniel McCarthy, who uh, was the former editor 
of the American conservative, um, great writer now at Modern Age, has a piece in Compact called DeSantis the Realist. And, you know, real quickly, uh, Dan, that you, you had highlighted this for me. I, you had written about DeSantis and his perspective, foreign policy. You're kind of not buying it that he is right. a well, realist. Right. And, yeah. In fairness to Dan, the, the title uh, is not one I, I imagine that he chose. It's something right. that got put onto his piece. Uh, he doesn't actually use the word realist to describe DeSantis in the piece itself. Uh, because I, and I don't think that label fits DeSantis at all well. Um, I, I think what uh, what Dan does get right is that he is uh, pretty much a, a reliable Republican, whatever whatever that may mean over time. And so, when uh, before Trump was in office, he was reliably anti-Obama, and whatever Obama did, uh, he was against it. And, and I think that's that's an important way to think about uh, framing his opposition to airstrikes in 2013 in Syria. Uh, which which Dan touts as an example that he's he, he seems to be a skeptic about regime change or regime change wars. And I don't know that that's really the right lesson to take from that. I think what we saw in the, in that case, in the 2013 episode, is that those airstrikes were incredibly unpopular across all party lines. Correct. And, and Congress rejected the idea of endorsing these airstrikes because it was so unpopular. And uh, so DeSantis in that case was really going with the crowd uh, and, and was also conveniently also taking a position against what Obama wanted to do. Exactly. And so it, was a, it was a win-win for him. And when you look at the rest of his record, you don't see skepticism about regime change. Uh, quite the, the contrary. You see him backing it in Venezuela. You see him talking about it in Iran. And so I, I think that that's where we need to look to understand what it is that uh, DeSantis thinks about U.S., the use of U.S. power in the world. Uh, he, he has no problem with us using at least some elements of our power to try to, to overthrow other governments. Uh, whether he supports using force to do that, I guess is still a somewhat open question. But in my book, if you're aligned with Marco Rubio and Tom Cotton, not only are you not a realist, but you're, you're definitely not going to be on the side of peace and restraint. Our guest today is Christopher Coyne. He's professor of economics at George Mason University and the associate director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. He is co-author with Abigail Hall of Manufacturing Militarism, U.S. Government Propaganda, and the War on Terror. And he's the author of a new book, In Search of Monsters to Destroy the Folly of American Empire and the Paths, of, Paths to Peace, uh, which will be coming out uh, next week in December. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, and thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you back. We, we talked about uh, manufacturing militarism before with you, and uh, we're interested to get into this new one as well. Uh, the, the new book makes a compelling case that in addition to the harm that empire does in the rest of the world, the habits of militarism and empire corrupt and corrode our own political system and values. Uh, can you say a bit more about how that works? Sure. So you know, one of the things I, I really want to highlight in this book is there's a, a, a bias towards the, the goods that empire does that a especially american empire and uh, that goes for social scientists who kind of assume that defense and foreign policy is a public good that needs to be provided by the state and the very idea that it's a public good 
biases it towards goods. And of course, policymakers frame uh, a the, the proactive militaristic U.S. foreign policy as a force for good and order abroad. And so one of the things that I really try to, to emphasize in this book is that we need to balance that analysis. We need to focus on the bads that empire can generate. And those bads can be foreign. That is, the, the, the costs that are generated by a empire can fall on foreign actors, but they also can uh, fall on domestic actors as well. And, uh, you know, many people from across fields of, of scholarly disciplines have pointed out that during times of war, uh, there is enormous pressure on constitutional constraints, uh, and that pressure oftentimes leads to those constitutional constraints being discarded. Uh, and once they are discarded, uh, it is near impossible to get them back. Uh, and and uh, uh, when you are at in, in a situation of permanent war, like the United States has been now for decades, uh, you know, constitutional rules just get pushed by the wayside. And then on top of that, of course, when you adopt a militar militaristic persona abroad, uh, that has real effects on domestic life. It has effects on the economy because, of course, you need to produce weapons, you need to produce hardware, you need to uh, produce people. So you need skilled people who can use all these things and control people abroad. And those people are are based at home and uh, operate at home. Uh, and it affects uh, uh, just the way that there is a relationship between the government and the citizens. And, of course, you saw this in the wake of, of 9-11 and how that relationship changed, where you had massive expansions in domestic power, uh, political power, and that comes at the expense of individual uh, freedom and liberty, even though you're, the, the supposed goal of those expansions of political power is to protect those very things. Absolutely. And one of the things that we, we do see uh, in, in terms of the culture is, is the uh, the instilling of uh, militaristic values uh, in, in place of old uh, political civic values and, and, and really sort of the, the glorification of the military that we've seen, especially in the last 20 years, but even going back before that, uh, maybe uh, to the Gulf War and even back into the Cold War. Uh, and so it has, it has a, a really a pervasive effect on uh, many aspects of life that people don't necessarily think about as being related to foreign policy. Um, you, you lay out some alternatives to militarism and empire uh, at the end of the book, and you describe it as global engagement by means other than militaristic imperialism and the associated hubris which assumes the world can be controlled by Western government elites. And so what might that engagement look like in practice? Yeah, so, you know, I... A lot of people say, well, you know, you need to look to engage in other ways. And, and so one of the things I point out very much in line with what other people have, have pointed out before is, look, there's numerous ways to interact with people through nation states. One is through military force. Another is through uh, uh, diplomacy uh, and economic interactions uh, and looking for all and every way for one government to peacefully interact with others. Uh, and that requires removing the militaristic framing of empire from its pedestal. And so when you emphasize force as the means of order in the world, as the means of interacting with people, then that crowds out necessarily other means of engaging with people. And, you know, it's important to emphasize that engaging with people is a process. It's a learning process, just like in our own life domestically. From a young age, we learn how to socially interact with other people, how to navigate conflict, how to resolve conflicts without resolving to violence. It's not perfect. 
we have violence in the world, but when you elevate violence as the means of interacting with people, you're going to get more of it. I also point out, though, which isn't often pointed out, that we we should think about ways to move beyond the nation state as the source of order. And so if we truly believe in self-governance, if we truly believe that, you know, in, in kind of the liberal values of human dignity, of individual freedom, then emphasis needs to be placed on individuals. And the fact that individuals in America interact with individuals in China. How do they interact with individuals in China? These are human beings. Again, we tend to talk about the Chinese government and the American government as if they are the primary actors of the world. Well, people interact with people across borders through economic interactions, through social interactions, through human movement. The same way in America, people in Virginia, where I'm sitting, interact with people in Maryland and people in West Virginia and people around the country. And those interactions are a means of facilitating human bonds, human connections, but also the cultivation of skills to live peacefully with each other. And so one of the the things I advocate for in the book, which I don't think is talked enough about in the policy space, is to think about ways to reduce the cost of people interacting with people. And again, foreign policy, oftentimes, because it's viewed as kind of the zero-sum or negative-sum game where America wins only if the China loses, and if China is winning, somehow America's losing. Well, that leads to policies which raise the costs of human beings interacting with other human beings, which prevents all of us from figuring out ways to live peacefully together. And so one of the things I really push in the book is kind of a, a very citizen-based individual view of of how we can have cultures of peace, cultures plural, purposefully, to point out that there's many different ways of living peacefully together. There's just not a single top-down way of global order the way it's typically framed in these conversations. Thanks, Chris, for coming on the show. I'm so happy to have you on Crashing the War Party once again. Um, I want to take that one step further, because in your book, specifically in the second chapter, which is entitled Illiberal Foundations of a Liberal Empire, you talk about the institutional framework that promotes empire and uh, militarism abroad. And so I like your idea of a, a citizen-empowered foreign policy um, for peace, but you make a great case here that that's going to be really difficult when you have what I'm going to call a deep state that is built around this mil- militarism with specifically with people who are committed uh, ideologically to uh, that approach. And you say, and I'm going to quote here from the book is really good stuff that I have not seen in other books. You say the job of running the liberal empire falls on largely lawless, a liberal group of American government officials and political elites who are given wide discretionary power, largely outside of the U.S. Constitution over the lives of peoples and nations, including their fellow citizens. And you talk about you say why a liberals get on top of a liberal empire. And you say, given imperialism, imperialism's authoritarianism, militarism, and the overall illiberalism required for an empire's growth, a certain type of individual rises to the top leadership positions. And you go on to talk about how 
you know, it takes this specific type of autocratic person who is bought into the system, who has the ability to conform and force others to conform are the ones who are in the top positions of the foreign policy establishment. This is very depressing stuff, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we're under this illusion that we're in this liberal world, but it really takes illiberals to run it the way they want to. Yeah, well, well, thank you for for highlighting that. And this is central to the critique of of a liberal empire. And of course, the word liberal there is always doing a lot of work uh, because, again, it biases the discussion towards, well, that's good. We like liberal values. So then empire must be promoting those things. Well, when you start to unpack kind of the industrial organization of the apparatus, you get into the kind of things that you were highlighting. And so the first thing I would highlight is that liberal imperialism requires someone to run it. It requires someone to run the imperialistic apparatus. And what's imperialism? Well, it is the use of the government and military instrument to impose some outcome on the world. Of course, if you didn't want to impose the outcome, if you were happy with the status quo, there'd be no urge to intervene in the first place. You would just say, okay, the status quo is good. So the, the very purpose of imperialistic empire is to change the status quo. Well, what does that require? It requires a small group of people who have a vision for how the world would look. So some grand blueprint, the confidence, or perhaps arrogance is a better way to put it, that their blueprint is the right way, but also that they can bring about that plan, that they can implement the plan. Well, what happens when the people they are intervening upon deviate from their blueprint. Well, you either have to go home, and that's not going to happen once you start doing this stuff, or you have to have force to back it up, which is inherently illiberal. The the tension of adopting highly illiberal means to bring about uh, uh, liberal ends in name, uh, I think is quite a quite powerful critique of this type of arrangement at its core, but one that I think is is often neglected. Now, the question then becomes, well, well, what type of people are going to run the show? Because you might say, well, if we get really good people, really smart people, uh, and they're, they're of good moral fiber, that will get good outcomes. Well, think about what type of people are going to be comfortable imposing things upon other human beings backstopped by the threat of force. People that are comfortable treating other people like they're pawns on a chessboard, like they are pieces that I can move around to accomplish my grand vision. And so we don't need to assume nefarious motivations necessarily on the part of people to critique empire, even though there's reason to believe there are nefarious motivations oftentimes. All we need to think about is the selection mechanisms, which is that people that are not comfortable telling other human beings what to do, sticking a gun in their face, utilizing robot technology in the form of drones uh, and other forms of social control are either not going to select into the system in the first place, or they're not going to be successful. They're not going to get promoted in the system because they're not good at carrying out its ends. And what you're going to get through this selection mechanism or set of selection mechanisms are highly illiberal people who are running, as you put it quite nicely, the deep state. And the deep state works at the fringes, if not entirely outside of constitutional constraints. And of course, the the people that are proponents of this make the argument that they cannot be constrained by the Constitution precisely because they can't have their hands tied in the face of crises around the world that need to be resolved in the name of maintaining liberal values. 
Yeah. And you mentioned uh, economist F.A. Hayek, you know, who, you know, people who are listening may or may not know, um, but he has has, you know, issued many uh, critiques on on the regime of government and institutions. And he says the worst people in society were the most likely to rise to positions of power. And he's saying this for, for government writ large. So is it even possible to have a new crop of people come in who are non-imperialistic, non-authoritarian, are more restraint-oriented in their foreign policy designs, rise to the level of top, the top echelons of government, or is there an inherent mismatch there that only the people, whether it's Hayek's uh, worst people um, or your, you know, um, idea that, you know, authoritarians, um, uh, you know, end up surfacing as, as, as the top officials can, can, can this be broken is what I'm asking is this pattern can be broken and find that good people who are for more restraint oriented foreign policy actually, uh, become, you know, um, the shepherds of this, uh, of the government. I don't know. Yeah, well, that's that's a big question, and it's a difficult one. And and here are some thoughts on it. I think it's certainly conceptually possible for for people of a of a different kind of who hold a different vision for what foreign policy should be. It's certainly possible for them to rise to positions of power. And throughout American history and and throughout history in general, we've seen ebbs and flows. Of course, the, that's one question: Can it happen? Will it happen is another question, and there's there's certainly dynamics pushing against uh, back against that. But then another big question is, can it ever be maintained? Can you actually maintain it? And, and this is a big debate. You know, people who come from a more restrained background certainly think that with certain checks and balances and, and ideological kind of preconditions in place that it can be restrained. My, you know, I've been studying these issues now for for a few decades, and and I've become more pessimistic that it ever can be maintained and more restrained foreign policy, given the nature of the apparatus itself, which is a, a concentration of force, a concentration of awesome powers. I just don't mean military might. I mean power over other human beings domestically and internationally. And I, I don't see a way to tie it down constitutionally. And so that's why towards the end of the book, uh, I've started shifting my focus to thinking about alternatives because it's it's good to good to critique all this, but what are the alternatives? One certainly is kind of a restraint approach, and I would welcome that to the status quo. Uh, but I think we even need to think harder and more creatively beyond that about how can we potentially provide security because there are threats in the world. I know I don't deny that there are threats in the world. Uh, how can we provide security without necessarily relying on the nation state? Uh, and, and there are ways to do that and to think about that. And some of them exist. It's not just, you know, scholarly, you know, imagination in the ivory tower. Uh, there we see, we see now and we've seen throughout human history, for instance, uh, numerous uh, social movements. Uh, some of them rely on violence. Many of them don't. There, there's a lot of scholarly literature on nonviolent uh, movements that uh, protect or or intend to protect the people involved from either foreign invaders, but oftentimes from domestic threats, which are their own government. 
definitely. And uh, we uh, we appreciate having you on, uh, Chris. Uh, we look forward to talking with you again about this in the future. I'm afraid we're out of time today, uh, but uh, we really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, once again, Christopher Coyne, uh, his new book coming out uh, in early December, uh, December 8th, I think it is, uh, In Search of Monsters to Destroy, The Folly of American Empire and the Path to Peace. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.